If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. No one needs another true crime podcast in their life, but we know you want one. Melissa and I are best friends and we wanted more too. When Whitney and I couldn't find exactly what we wanted, we created our own. Cults, Crimes, and Cabernet embraces the grim realities of the world with a side of wine. Don't drink wine? That's okay, too. Over the last three seasons, our true crime journey has evolved from being a listener like you to becoming advocates. Each week, we cover an unsolved case in a different state in an effort to create new leads to help advance the case. To take advocacy one step further, we also travel to locations to help families of those who have gone missing or have been murdered. Whether it's a foot search or passing out flyers, we will be there, no matter where, no matter who. We invite you to join us, so pop a cork and grab a glass, because we have work to do. Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet is available wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Mind Over Murder podcast. My name is Bill Thomas. I'm a writer, consulting producer, and now podcaster. I am now trying to use my experience as the brother of a murder victim to help other victims of violent crime. I'm working on a book on the unsolved Colonial Parkway murders, and I'm the co-administrator of the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook group, together with Kristen Dilley. My name is Kristen Dilley. I'm a writer, a researcher, a teacher, and a victim's advocate, as well as the social media manager and co-administrator for the Colonial Parkway Murders Facebook page with my partner in crime, Bill Thomas. Hi, welcome back to part two of our discussion of the Summerton Man case with investigative genetic genealogist and pioneer Colleen Fitzpatrick. As we continue the discussion, Colleen is walking us through how the investigative team used genetic genealogy, specifically the GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA databases, in order to figure out who Summerton Man might be. One of the challenges is that these databases at this point are very U.S.-centric, and this is a case from Australia. We pick up the conversation as she walks us through that process. 
We hope you enjoy this episode of Mind Over Murder, and thanks as always. We're joined today by Colleen Fitzpatrick, a pioneer in the field of forensic genetic genealogy and rocket scientist. One of our favorite people to talk to. Colleen, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. The whole forensic genealogy thing is an American phenomenon, and the databases are full of American genealogists. So normally you do a case outside of, say, U.S. and even Canada, and you run into low matches, you run into, you would see, normally you'd think the matches, anybody on the list are going to be distant matches because he's dead in 1948. Maybe he connects to Americans through the UK before they came to the United States or to Australia. You can really understand a very deep connection, but recent, who knows? We got lucky. We got lucky because the top match was a young man who was like on the second cousin level. The rest of them, the rest of them were really low and they did connect in the UK. There were a lot of Americans that connected to whoever he was a long time ago. This man, his name was Jack. He was maybe 30 years old and he didn't know who his father was. And the connection was through his father's line to the Somerton man, of course. Uh, I spent a weekend just, and then I I wrote him, I said, we're doing this John Doe case. I really can't talk a lot about it. You turned out that if you shared your DNA with us, or you shared your story, or you shared your ancestry account, whatever, it would be very helpful to us to find out who this man is. And we didn't say anything else about it. And because I was American, they didn't really suspect that this was an Australian case. Uh Very clever. See how clever we are? Now, the aunt, the guy's aunt, was in correspondence with us. And she had his two aunts, his great aunts, his mom eventually tested. So I did an adoption search and I found out who his father was. And they were all over the moon, very happy. I'm sorry, Colleen, you've referenced an adoption search twice. Can you explain for our listeners what an adoption search entails? A lot of people take these tests, these ancestry tests, so to speak, because they're adopted and they would like to find their parents. And when you take the ancestry test, I use that as an example because it's very popular. You get the answer is you get the results are a list of, we call them DNA cousins or matches that match you because they share certain amounts of DNA with you. And if you stumble on somebody who shares half of your DNA with you, then it has to be your parent, your sibling, or your child. If it's less than that, you could be a first cousin, second cousin, whatever. So the adoptees take these tests because there's over 50-50 chance that if you do, you're going to find out who your parents are, or you're going to find your biological family. So this man, this young man, Jack, was after that. He knew his mom, but he didn't know his dad. So when his matches came in, naturally, he could eliminate the mom because he knew who they were. And they were aunts and great aunts of his. He knew all of those. And the ones left over belonged to his dad. And we could use those to, it's like a Sudoku puzzle, where you take these relatives, you move them around in the right way, and they all have to connect with each other. Finally, you get it all self-consistent and the missing piece is your Mr. X. So that's what we, Jack had taken the, ancestry test and he had uploaded to GEDmatch hoping to find out his aunt had actually put him up to it 
hoping to find out who his father was. So we stumbled on. We don't know who his father is, but we sure would like to find out. Jack wants to find his father. We sure want to find his father, too. There's a reason. So I went into Jack's matches. He let me have the aunt let me look at his account and see his matches on Ancestry, on GEDmatch, all of that. And I figured out who his father was. And I turned that over to Jack and his family, and they were very happy about that. And so they continued to allow us to work it out with them, see, continue to see his matches. We got past that. Now we had to build his tree. They were very happy to see his dad's pedigree as well, because now Jack knows who he is. So this has benefit for both parties, you in uh-huh. your search and Jack and his family in theirs. And that's not uncommon, because there's a lot of adoptees in the databases And it's not uncommon. Like, I think the next one on our list, which was more distant, was an American who didn't know who his father was. I think out of the top several matches, we had two or three adoptees looking for their birth parents. And it just so happens Jack was within reach. Now the story shifts from Justin to Robin to Rachel, Roma, Derek. And now it shifts to Jack, who is Jack and who is Jack's father. And how is he related to the Somerton man? We built out a nice tree, and I'm tooling along. I get Jack's grandfather, great-grandfather. It's out there. The aunt has helping a little bit, and you won't believe what happened next. Tune in next time. <laughs> Stop <laughs> Tune in now. for our next episode. <laughs> so, yeah, tune in for our next episode. Jack is the great-grandson of somebody. Guess what his name is? McMahon? Yes. No? Smith. I give up. Thomas Keene. Oh, the, oh. The, the name inside the clothes. The name inside the clothes. Yeah. Okay. And, wow. And Derek's saying, oh, that's a coincidence. Come on. Oh. No <laughs> way. Are kidding me? There are no, no coincidences. Way it's a, no, I, I'm with Kristen on this one. There are no coincidences. And he says that Thomas Keene, we do newspaper searches, we looking at all these people, and Thomas Keene was commonly known as Gerald. Derek thinks, okay, he's Gerald, he's not Tom. I said, who cares? He says, Derek says, my first name isn't Derek. I, I go by Derek. I write Derek. So why would, I said, well, look, there's 7 billion people on earth. Why would all the six <laughs> other people, million people, billion people, Follow the same rules of naming themselves as you do. There's no reason. This is not an engineering prod- project here. Okay, I, I didn't. Anyway, we had a small discussion about that. Spirited discussion. We looked all over the old newspapers in Australia, and we found out Thomas Keene died. There's a notice of his funeral. There's a notice of the family. And yeah, so he's not Thomas Keene because we know where Thomas Keene is buried. So this requires more research into the family to find Somebody, we don't know what happened to him. There's no date of death. He evaporates in history, and we find his brother-in-law, Carl Webb, who is the brother of Thomas's wife. Thomas marries Frieda Webb, and her brother is Carl Webb, and Carl Webb does not have a date of death. And Carl Webb is about the right age. Everything looks out. He's in Melbourne. And so Jack is a web. He goes through Carl's father. He's related to Frida. And they have, it's like the father's side of Carl's family. And to do it right, we need to have the mother's side, a match on the mother's side. 
We just can't say it's Carl because who knows? We need mom and dad's side, a match to mom and dad's side. Right. It takes a while to find one because these people are dead. They're gone. They're born in the 1900s. We find that his mother, Eliza, her name was, I think, Eliza Grace. And we start studying the Grace family to see if Liza had a sister that could come down through Carl's mother's family. We do all that, a sister or brother, whatever. And in the middle of all this, somebody rises and says, I've I researched Eliza a lot. And by the way, she's not a Grace. She was actually adopted. She was, this gets worse. Actually, her mother is her mother. I think her mother's name is Amelia. But her father died before she was born. Her father you know, she was probably three or four months along, and then the father died, and the mother remarried really quickly to somebody oh. named Grace, and she went by the name Grace, but she's really a Stevens. My gosh. Good thing, good thing we found it out. So we take it then. took it takes a anyway. The end of it, it takes a few weeks to find a connection to mom's side, Carl's, and we have him tested, and that takes through ancestry. It takes six to eight weeks to get the results. So we're sitting there twiddling our thumbs trying to find other family members. And the family is very, mom's side is very dilute. They've gone to different places. They've had a divorce where half the family wasn't talking to the other half and all the family pictures went with the other half and they were lost and nobody talks to each other anymore. So it took a while and we finally found a connection to mom's side, had them tested on ancestry and then six to eight weeks later, bingo, there it is. He's exactly, he connects to Carl's mom. Okay. So we've identified, we really have identified Carl. He has no date of death. He's from the right place. All right. May I continue with the next, however? Yes. Number four. (laughs) Now we got to find out who Carl is and why he's dead on the beach. Carl was married to a lady named Dorothy. They married in 1941. They separated in 47. Dorothy left, I think, in... Carl left their residence in South Yarra around the Melbourne area. He leaves in, I think, April 47, and she leaves in September 47. So they leave, they separate, and they finally move away. Now, Carl dies on the beach. We now know it's Carl on the beach. Mm -hmm. What happens to Dorothy divorces Carl in 1951. She starts a divorce decree. It's finalized in 52, almost exactly five years after he left, which is some kind of law. You have to wait five years and you get a divorce. She divorces him because of abandonment. She's doesn't hasn't heard from him. He abandoned her and she puts the notices in the newspaper Carl Webb, if you don't come to the court, at, and so we're going to, I'm going to divorce your butt and you're going to have to pay all these fines. You might as well come down and show your fate, something like that. If you read a divorce decree, she's, she outlines that Carl is a very moody. He has severe mood swings. He can be very charming at times, but he's very depressed. He'll go to bed at seven o'clock at night, not come out. He's gambler. And that we find ads he's placed in the paper selling his fancy car, his fancy tennis racket, his fancy other things. So he's not, so a, he's he's not a good gambler. He's a bad gambler. You got, <laughs> yeah. He, he asks for all her money when she earns it. It's, he yells at her, and there's several calls for domestic abuse over time. But she also says that he writes poetry about death and that his fondest desire is to be dead. Interesting. 
Oh my God. She comes home one day and she finds the house smells like ether. In fact, the neighbors are complaining. It smells like ether. Mm -hmm. And she finds him soaking wet in bed and he has swallowed 50 phenobarbital tablets. Oh my gosh. How did he not die? So she gets him up wow. and she saves him somehow. And he's screaming at her, if you save me and I get better, I'm going to kill you. It's just her father comes to rescue her in the middle of the night one time. One time she stays in a hotel, comes back, she's locked out. She uses a match to see, to try and get in the house. And he says she's burning down the house. She locks herself in a room. It's very kind of bad scene there. So you read through all this. What's interesting is what, Bar what Dorothy does for a living. Right at the top, she says, I am Dorothy. And she introduces herself, identifies herself. And you know what she does for a living? Can you guess? I'm guessing not a ballet dancer. No. <laughs> a nurse? All right. She's a pharmacist. She's a pharmacist. Oh, interesting, though. Oh, I guess that would explain where he got all the phenobarbital from, then. Right. Could be. So not only that, in 1951, when she writes this and files it, she lives, she doesn't live in Melbourne. She lives in South Australia. She lives in a town called Butte, B-U-T-E. And it's on the rail line between Melbourne and Perth. Hmm. So you go through Adelaide, then you go through Butte, and then you wind up later on in Perth. So now you have to ask yourself, you know, exactly now, you don't know. You don't know, was it murder? Was it suicide? Was it assisted suicide? Was it, how do you go about this? Now, the mystery is not Carl, it's Dorothy. What happened to Dorothy? We can't find Dorothy. And it's 70 we years later. We don't know. We've been looking for Dorothy. She has a nephew who was alive who didn't really know her. She had a sister, Phyllis. And Phyllis... The, their father, Mr. Robertson, died in, I don't know, 80s, 90s. He left all the money to Phyllis. The obituary mentions both daughters, but he just left everything to Phyllis. And the nephew, Phyllis's son, said he never really knew Dorothy, but that she died. He remembered vaguely she died in the 1990s in New South Wales, and she lived in a colony of people. I don't know, LGBTQ people or hippies or something. We can't find Dorothy he vaguely remembered a couple of names floating through the whole story that may have known Dorothy. But we don't know what happened to Dorothy. We can't find her. And we don't know if she just divorced Carl and went on with life or whether she divorced Carl and kept getting married in Black Widow or whatever. I don't want to accuse her or anything without knowing who she was. But Dorothy has vanished. Wow. We're trying to find out what happened to Dorothy. Interesting. You're listening to Mind Over Murder. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you're ready for a new mission, Join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We're back here at Mind Over Murder. So now what comes next? You've identified, I guess it's not fair to call him Summerton Man anymore because now we know his name. You've identified Charles Webb. What happens next? There's a couple of things. First, the South Australian police are confirming. They have their, that we gave them the data and they have the exhumed remains to work with. And so they're working with us to confirm. We're also, we asked, I hope they do toxicology tests on the body. It turns out organics like barbiturates disappear really quickly in the body. So after 75 years, you aren't going to really see any po- any of the organic poisonings. Heavy metals might be around, not the organics. They're gone. How much of the body um, would be left after 75 years, Yeah, in your opinion, uh, Colleen? My understanding, it was just it, there wasn't a whole lot of soft tissue left. That You can find bones that are hundreds of years old. That's not the... Right. Mm, that's, that's not the problem. That's the hard part of our body, not the soft yeah. part. And this, yeah. uh, unlike situations where Kristen and I have been talking with people about murder victims or missing persons that have been out in the environment, he was actually buried in a traditional cemetery. And then yeah. the body and the casket were then exhumed. You are working with the law enforcement agencies in Australia to assist in this confirmation of the identification that you've created? Yeah, Derek's in touch with them all the time. In the meantime, we're researching if we can find Dorothy. One thing that has come up is Derek has a group of, I call them minions, people (laughs) who are really very good researchers and discovered about the Keene family that Thomas Keene, and Derek would have more information, but Thomas Keene was like a construction person for the theater. And he would help, he even traveled with the Russian ballet for a while, internal Australia. So he probably was in contact with a lot of Americans. His son, John Keene, was killed in World War II, like 42, 43, so that the stuff in the suitcase, like the laundry bag, could have said J, not T. It could have been because apparently when his belongings were returned to the Keene family, it had a lot of American stuff in it. Although Mr. Keene himself was Australian, am I correct? Yeah. And his son was killed while serving with the Australian Armed Forces in World War II. So it could have been his son's hand-me-downs that they gave to Carl. I believe, my guess, is that, just to tie up the loose ends, is that Carl may have met Justin at one point. He may have known her, and I think Carl, they had thought 
that whoever the man was had come in from Melbourne on the night train, overnight train. It's like a eight to 12 hour train ride. And he got off. He was going to spend the day, catch the train. I think he was going after Dorothy and he was going to go and try and find her somewhere in South Australia, either in Adelaide or Boot. And he had the day in the city and he went to the beach and he knew Justin, maybe he looked her up and he knew her from somewhere. It wasn't a love affair or anything. He just knew her and it was to kill time, I guess. And he was on his way to find Dorothy somewhere. Oh, and in the meantime, after he left their home in Melbourne in April of 47, I think he may have gone to live with the Keens for a while. He may have gone to stay with his sister who was maybe 20 minutes, half an hour away. So he may have gone to stay with them because he was broke. He was broke. He was a gambler and he was broke. And he may have stayed with them and either they asked him to leave or he decided to leave and go after Dorothy. And he may have gotten some of the son's hand-me-downs, like the tie and the clothing bag, a few things that he happened maybe just to pick up around the house. And I think that's what happened. And the sheet of paper with the codes on it. Yeah they think might have been related to his gambling, gambling habits? Yeah. Derek and his student engineering students have actually won awards for not breaking the code because they tried all kinds of codes and it didn't work. So the end is that the best fit that they found was the first letters of I have to go to the store or a series, a phrase, or to, as a reminder, and we think... Even it's been brought up, that could have been the names of horses at various races or some kind of gam- some kind of gambling mnemonic for him to remember what to do at certain times. Very interesting. While he was losing his fortune at yeah. various racetracks. <laughs> yeah, or whatever. There's stories, Dorothy tells stories about a card game and he lost in the card game and he got up and he took a knife and he was threatening the winner with a knife. Wow. Not the most stable guy in the world. You wouldn't think so. Is the idea that he would be looking for Dorothy, do you have anything to base that on, or is that just more kind of logic combined with a bit of a romantic notion? What's your thinking there? I think it's just logic because she was living, she left, we don't know where she went, and the man has always been thought to have come in on the overnight train from Melbourne, and why would he leave Melbourne? He had no relatives. He had no connections anywhere else. He was an instrument maker. He was a gambler. And a person like that gets local work. He may have gotten, say, a job. He's going somewhere else for a job. But in those days, why would you need to do that? His family, he's getting he's separated from his wife. He has family in the area of Melbourne. I think he was going after her because we do know at some point in 52, 51, she was living in South Australia along the rail line. So that's a Buddhist, strong possibility. It was just a very small train stop at the time. It wasn't, it was a small town that grew around the train stop. No, I was just going to say, we, we consulted with the Boot Historical Society and all that, and they don't have any reference to Dorothy Webb or Dorothy Robertson. No Dorothys. It's got to feel extremely good to put the missing pieces of a puzzle into place Mm -hmm. like this. If you could come up with one adjective to describe it, what would you say the feeling is after that? Maybe wow. Wow would be close. 
It's interesting. I like the story. I like the, yeah. where we, how, what happened to Dorothy? That's the next chapter. What and, happened to Dorothy? And do you think you'll be able to figure that out? No idea. We're looking, we're digging in the old Dorothy garden, looking for the roots and the berries and the seeds. But I guess death indexes or the newspapers haven't really revealed anything. She just died. They didn't put an obit or anything. She didn't have really anybody. So we know she was broke too, because the sister gave a bunch some money for the funeral. And one of the questions was always, was he a dancer because of these very powerful legs that he had? And from the research that Kristen and I were doing to prepare for this conversation, it sounds like the thinking now is that him standing up in machine shops and using tools and that sort of thing would have resulted in these sort of powerful stocky legs that were one of his physical features? I think, though, he was also somewhat of an athlete because when you see what he's selling off, one of them is a very expensive tennis racket, one item. So I think there may have been a couple of other things, but the tennis racket tells you he's into tennis. So there's so many really interesting theories about this. There's the Russian spy theory, the jilted lover theory, the ballet dancer theory. Did actually learning the truth about him ever feel like a bit of a letdown compared to the wild stories? Or is that actually better? Reality sometimes is stranger than truth. Reality is fiction, stranger than fiction. I like the new way we're going, trying to find Dorothy. And another thing occurred to me is that this man came into the marriage with a fancy car, tennis racket, that kind of income, that kind of level of life. And you can see he gets married, he starts selling stuff off. And about 41, 42, this is happening. And then in 40, later 47, that's when trouble is evolving. I'm wondering if Dorothy started out with him, trying to get him, what would you say, Black Widow, where you marry someone who's affluent, and then you work on him, you work on him, and over time you get rid of him, something. I'm just wondering so I'm wondering if she's sitting there thinking, oh, rats, he left. I can't. The really? rat poison isn't going to work. I, <laughs> oh, because I've always assumed that the poison was self-administered. But I guess what you're saying, there's a possibility there could be a murder mystery mixed in here. Wow. Yeah, we don't know. It, it could have been assisted suicide. Here, Carl, how about this? Let me give you let me give you some food for the trip. So if you get hungry, <laughs> just have a bite of this apple and everything will be fine. You don't know. That's why we got to find out what happened to Dorothy because <laughs> wow. somebody might have poisoned her. Maybe one of the husbands caught on and gave her the poison apple first. We don't know. Wow. Oh, I when you said assisted suicide, I thought to myself, Carl, you seem really depressed and you're out of money, so let me just help you step off the edge here. Yeah. She said, now this divorce decree is one-sided. You're reading her rendition. Correct. Yes. Desiring yeah. to get a divorce. So right. she doesn't go into the gambling, but she does go into the depression. I evident, she says just what happened. She doesn't say, oh, he's manic depressed. They didn't go there. But talking about his behavior, his erratic behavior, his, what is it, anger, lashing out, the whole money, taking her money, which she earns, and locking her out. That's one-sided. He doesn't have a chance to really tell you what happened. Yeah. And oh, she doesn't really, she says she's a pharmacist and then goes on and never brings that up again. Yeah, that's interesting. 
That is cool. And her my radar went off when the I saw a pharmacist. Part. Wait a minute. Oh, Barbara, <laughs> you needed a prescription to get those barbiturates back then. Wow. And her well dressed husband ends up dead on a beach, likely from poison of some poison. sort. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. So, you have to think about that. So what is the next big case on your caseload? Or do you, can you talk about it? Oh, I can't tell you that. I didn't think so. We have a big whopper we're going to come out with, but it's taking a while to get it. You know, you have to confirm. You got the agency to okay it. You've got to arrange for the big press conference. So you got to get all the guys with the medals on their chest to all be there at one time. And one's got this and one's got that. No, they won't stand next to that other guy, whatever. (laughs) But yeah, I want to say I'm, they're all very nice people, but we do have a, and I will be glad to come back and tell you about that one. Oh, yeah. that In fact, I, great. Have, I have a couple that are up my sleeve. Okay. I can't say anything about it or I'll get in really deep water and deep trouble and it'd be awful. We can't have that. This Carl Webb story from Australia, taking the name Somerton man all the way out now to identifying him. And I know there are open issues, this is such a fascinating story. Anyone said anything to you about this would make an incredible movie? I know you've got a television um, show already in development. This would make an incredible movie. I'd go to see yeah. this movie. I don't, not yet. I think that, yeah, they'll come after us. I've been on numerous podcasts. It's been all in various, the Australian newspapers went went wild. I, had, I can imagine. You know, I had to schedule 15 minute slots it went like that it wasn't as well publicized here because it's not this country's case it was in the uk as well so i wouldn't be surprised i would like to say the tv program went into pilot but then it got canceled because we're so sorry it it wasn't diverse enough that's fine no i'm fine no no fine another story for another time fine (laughs) but i do agree the whole somerton thing is and with the right people, maybe they could help us find out what happened to Dorothy. That's going to be the name of the TV series that they do. What happened to Dorothy? Yeah, what happened to Dorothy? <laughs> what happened to Dorothy? To there you go. Yeah. What happened to Dorothy is going to be that series. Yeah. It's just so much. It's going to never end. We do hope that you will come back and join us as soon as you have another break in a case that you can tell us about, because we do love hearing about the, the great work that you're doing here in the big investigative jigsaw puzzle that it's yeah. like I would lose I would lose all of my patience with the various ins and outs and the tracings of different paths. So hats off to you for having the patience to do this. I wouldn't have that at yeah, all. People tell me that, but what do you do? You just say, Oh, I can't get in five minutes. I'll see you later. You're stuck. It's like a tar baby that yeah, how am I ever you can't it's hard not to have patience with a tar baby because <laughs> you can't get out of it. And what stuck. are you gonna do but sit there? And you just stay with it and you see it all the way through. But it's fascinating and I can't even calculate how many thousands of hours do you think you put in on this case of Mr. Webb? Since 2015, quite a few. Now on the the actual, since the beginning of the year now, I don't know. A lot. Yeah, I put a lot of time in. Yeah, Derek did too. And it was great working with him because he's such a good sport and he has this quirky smile you know you can see he's up to something and he said it was funny he his wife is not really the granddaughter of the Somerton man so she was teasing him saying now I'm going to have to get a divorce (laughs) (laughs) 
Colleen, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the Summerton Man. And we will definitely have you back to talk about your next amazing cases. Okay, they're in the pipeline. We're getting ready. Watch this space. Stay tuned for future developments. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Mind Over Murder. We'll see you next time. Mind Over Murder is a production of Absolute Zero and Another Dog Productions. Our executive producers are Bill Thomas and Kristen Dilley. Our logo art is by Pamela Arnois. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Mind Over Murder is distributed in partnership with Crawl Space Media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also follow our page on the Colonial Parkway Murders on Facebook. And finally, you can follow Bill Thomas on Twitter at BillThomas56. Thank you for listening to Mind Over Murder. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.